welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Like the feelings of the ship's passengers, however, our joy in escape from disaster does not subside as we go our individual ways. The feeling of having shared in common peril is one element in the powerful cement that binds us. But that in itself would never have held us together as we are now joined. The tremendous fact for us, for every one of us, is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out upon which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. I'm here to introduce our speaker tonight, and I can identify with Jesse in that I knew that I had issues with all things sexual long before I was able to get sober. My problem was that I also thought I knew all the answers, and that I really needed what I really needed to do was just to apply what I thought I knew, and with enough willpower. I could control these issues and impulses. I came into this fellowship having worked the steps once with a good sponsor in another S fellowship. I thought I was done. I was wrong. Jesse and I have been in this fellowship for almost the same amount of time. Jesse doesn't live in San Antonio. He lives in a very small town, about a hundred miles southwest of here. The area where he lives is known mostly for oil, trophy deer, and thorn bushes. So anyway, he isn't able to attend as many meetings as some of us. But when one drives a hundred miles in order to seek recovery, that says something for their willingness to go to any length, their desire and maybe their desperation. My first impression of him, I thought he was a southern preacher, (laughs) that he had spent too much time in the pulpit telling other people how to live their lives, which for me meant rebellion. I've got a a critical streak, but I was wrong. I have to admit that I'm just really getting to know Jesse. And it's just been over the last year that I've started to get spending a little more time talking and just spending more time with each other. We've learned a lot about each other, and I've learned that Jesse is very well educated, well read, an accomplished musician, and he's been a teacher, a manager of nonprofits, and has worked in the safety industry. I've learned about some about its family and other personal experiences. For me, Jesse has gravitas. He speaks, I listen. Even though he's pretty soft-spoken, he's thoughtful, 
sensitive, and always grammatically correct. (laughs) I find there's a depth to what he says that grabs me and keeps me thinking long after he stopped talking. This Texas drawl is soothing to me, and I sincerely hope that you all have the same experience. And so without further ado, I'd like to introduce Jesse J. I'm Jesse, and I'm a sexaholic. Uh, Thank you, Chuck. I recognize myself in every word that you said, and not all of it was flattering, in my opinion. It uh, kind of makes me think that sometimes we take this rigorous honesty thing a little bit too seriously. But anyway, I'm a sexaholic, and now all of you know it. I've been sober for five years and four months. My home group is the... Oh, that's nothing, just wait. My home group is the San Antonio de Zavala group. And let me say again, welcome to San Antonio. We want you to feel safe and well cared for while you're here with us. We take this Texas hospitality thing very seriously. Well, you can see they gave me a podium, and I had to come to terms with that because, for me, a podium represents authority. And uh, five years ago, no doubt, I would have stepped up here and spoken with grave authority. But I'm not speaking as an authority tonight. I'm just telling my story. I joined SA to learn humility. I didn't know that at the time or I wouldn't have stayed because I already saw myself as Mr. Humble. I've got a lot of things going on for me. I'm smarter than you. I'm better looking than you. I'm more spiritual than you and on and on and on. And even then, I'm more humble than you. When I first came in here, I could out-spiritual and out-humble anybody in the room. I'd been in various groups and programs for 15 years when I landed here in this San Antonio group. And I'm not saying I was sober and working the program for all of that time. I'm just saying that I was in or out of some kind of program or another for all of that time. So when I landed here and I'd strung together a few weeks of sobriety, I expected some recognition, a leadership position. For starters... I re-edited the white book. Right, let's say it's a mess. The, the, the outline is confusing. The order is all wrong. It just needs fixing. So then I asked around to get myself put on the literature committee. And I don't mean the local thing. We got local people that can handle that. I mean the national committee where obviously they needed the help. But I couldn't even find anybody in charge to put me in touch with the upper-ups, so that project went nowhere. Uh, A testament to the ought-never-be-organized thing, I guess. As time went on, people enjoyed my shares, so naturally I felt entitled and ready to be on the speaker circuit, worldwide. 
I was an undiscovered jewel of wisdom. I hadn't learned humility. I needed recovery with patient recovered sponsors and the example of a healthy fellowship to learn how to be truly at peace, to lose my arrogance. And I stay in that place of fit spiritual condition most of the time. Well, I got there by working the steps. Steps one, two, and three, we decide to work it. In four and five, we wrestle our demons. In six and seven, we face our character defects. In eight and nine, we put to rest our differences between ourselves and other people. And after all that hard work, it brings us to my favorite passage in the big book. It's on page 84 in step 10. And we have ceased fighting anything and anyone, even alcohol or lust, or addiction, or in-laws, or long lines, or anything you'd care to name. We feel as though we had been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. I invite you to read the whole passage. It's beautiful. And it is something to shoot for. Now let's talk some more about my arrogance. There's a couple of three passages in the big book that use the word cocky, and one of them describes me to a T. It's on page 66 in step four. Self-reliance was good as far as it went, but it didn't go far enough. Some of us once had great self-confidence, but it didn't fully solve the fear problem or any other. When it made us cocky, it was worse. Well, you need an instant expert on just anything? Well, that's me. I'll just step up there and explain it all to you. Or if you've already got an expert, then do you need a perfect student who will listen intently and ask pertinent questions that show a profound grasp of the subject. Well, I'm that guy, front and center. Find some injustice in the workplace? I'm your crusader. Follow me. Restless, irritable, discontented? No, I'm doing all this for you. Trouble is, except for occasional flashes of sincerity, it was all manufactured. All about me, putting myself up on top for you to admire me. Arrogance, put up by my fears, fed by the addict that lives inside me. This is the same addict that gave me the solution for the lifelong frustration I suffered from not getting my way all the time. It taught me to look outside myself, to numb my hurt feelings, or to get a higher high. My normal response to life was being right, isolating, and sexual acting out. The actions of recovery were foreign to me. But there I was in recovery, well, in various recovery programs for 15 years with that extra layer covering up, holding down all the crap that filled up the place where peace could live. I used to say 10 years, but when I reread my first step, it was 15 years, plus 20 years before that of deepening addiction and acting out, 10 hours or more a day isolating and surfing porn on the Internet, running a business into the ground, visiting strip clubs and prostitutes, becoming more and more detached from my family and from my responsibilities. My life was chaos, and the family was along for the ride. Every new calamity piled up more numbness and resentment. 
stacks of unopened mail, dodging bill collectors, getting the lights cut off because I couldn't pay the bill on time. I let a student loan recapitalize and grow from $24,000 to over $50,000 because I couldn't stick with a payment plan and I didn't want to talk with those people on the phone and I was pissed because they wouldn't work with me. I didn't pay income taxes for six years. Restless, irritable, and discontented? No. I'm working my ass off and nobody will cut me some slack. At home, there was constant bickering, the kids wishing, even asking for divorce. My two sons grew up in this household. The elder left for college, didn't look back. The younger attempted suicide, age 15, and we didn't even see it coming. My wife, Cynthia, was losing her mind and I couldn't help her. I didn't even try. I just thought she was overly dramatic. Well, every counselor that saw us could see she was cracking up, which, of course, took the onus off of me. She was hospitalized, which made me look better by comparison, and it helped to cover up my secret life. Family offered to help. I turned them away. No, we're fine. We're going to be all right. We'll get through this. I isolated my family. Restless, irritable, discontented. No, I just hope and pray things get better. Over the past 40 years, I've had 12 different full-time jobs. That works out to a new job every three or four years, not counting all the part-time jobs in between. Restless, irritable, discontented? No, I'm a nice guy. Hard-working, school-visiting, church-volunteering, everything a normal person is. Trouble is, I only did it part-time, with a clouded mind, and with a secret life no one, no one knew about. When some small part of my secret life was discovered, I'd fess up to that part and humbly, humbly seek recovery. Bounced in and out of various groups and programs. Never stayed sober for more than a few weeks or months. Never dug into the recovery that could change me. Truth is, I didn't want to change. I didn't see the need. But it wasn't a total loss. I became an expert on the steps. So here's the Jesse Step Program. You ready? <laughs> Step one, powerless? Yes, of course, I can't help myself. Step two, came to believe that a power, blah 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 Oh, I already know that part. Step three, made a decision to turn my will and life into blah, blah, blah. Oh, I did that years ago, in my youth even. Step four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of all the terrible people who've harmed me from childhood. <laughs> harmed me from childhood up to the present day. Now we're getting somewhere. And i got to tell you, that was quite a list, and I benignly forgive them all. <laughs> so now I'm done with that. Admitted the exact nature of my wrongs? My wrongs? <laughs> well, yes, I was wrong to carry around all that resentment about how badly you people hurt me and caused me to fall under this terrible burden of addiction, and I forgive you 
So I'm done with that. Step six, entirely ready to have God remove these defects of character? Yes, of course. God knows my defects. If he in his wisdom wishes to remove them, he will do so. He's probably already done it and I haven't even noticed. (laughs) Step seven, humbly ask him to remove my shortcomings. That's not necessary. God already did that. (laughs) Step eight, made a list of all persons I have harmed. Whoa. Hold up just a red hot minute. People I have harmed, especially the part where it says, you made the list in step four. No, I didn't. Those were sins against me. And I forgave, and we're done with that. But with some prodding, I guess, it's a stumper, really. People I have harmed. But okay, all right. I I guess there's a couple. I got it. I'm ready. Step nine, made amends. I'm very, very sorry. And I feel much better. And I bet you do too. Never mind about step 10, 11, and 12, because working the steps this way, as you can imagine, I rarely made it past step four before I changed sponsors or changed groups or just dropped out. Then Cynthia found my stash, cash, maps, websites, names. She found the hobby website and read every post And every review I had written about every prostitute I had visited in 13 years. She was hurt. She was hurt beyond words, beyond my understanding. It held up a mirror to my wrongness. Finally, I wanted, I really wanted to get serious, to save myself. But my addict had a stronger will than I had. Now, if you work the program, you can hear the error. I was still using my will to do just about everything. And let's face it, my addict is totally wrapped up in my will. So even then, for several more years, I struggled. I found semi-recovery. Hard to explain, but my life was improving. I was more sober. I was taking yet another run at step nine and feeling pretty smug about it. was in a session with my counselor who was recovered in AA. And I was going on about my problems and I was warming up to a really good one. And all of a sudden her head popped up. Her head popped up and she looked across at me and said, You haven't done step four. You're full of resentment. Get a sponsor who will really work you. Go back and do step four. Well, it was humbling. But I knew what she meant, and I did what she said. So after more sponsoring, counseling, I was finally able to let go of enough cockiness, anger, resentment, fear, shame, numbness for my real self to break through.
long after I read, uh, I wrote that, I noticed lust didn't even make the list. That points up what the big book and the old timers keep telling us. You know, your lust in acting out is not your problem. It's your solution that doesn't work. Your problem is your selfish, self-centered attitude. And they're right. So instead of thinking about my problems, being the victim, looking for deliverance through procrastination, looking for escape through fantasy, porn, masturbation, prostitution, I learned to put myself into the service of others. It may not sound like a solution, but it is. The big book talks about humility. But more than humility, the big book talks about honesty. Lots more. It says we must be entirely honest with somebody if we expect to live long or happily in this world. I blame religion for not saving me, but I was never honest there. I've since learned from people of various religions, we all have hang-ups. If religion was the culprit, we would know by now which one to blame for the world's addiction problem. The truth is, it's my opinions, my judgment, that shape my attitude, and that's what shapes my life. I have two brothers that grew up in the same household I did. One of them is a straight arrow, and the other one died at age 57 from multiple addictions, including sex. And this humility and service to others thing, instead of making me into a boring milk toast pansy that nobody could respect, an amazing thing happened. I speak less. Instead of being right, being the expert, I focus my attention on the relationship between myself and the other person. People learn to trust me. They enjoy my company more. So here's some examples of my life in recovery. No bright light experiences, just peace. Remember the $50,000 student loan and six years of income taxes? Those debts did not magically disappear like I once thought they ought to. I still owe on those debts and others, but the fear is gone. The situation is there, but the problem has been removed. I can answer the phone and talk to the person on the other end of the line. I'm staying on the payment plans, and I'm paying them down. My clear mind can manage money. To a normal person, that may be like a small thing, but for me, what was impossible in my chaotic life is now possible in my peaceful life. My younger son recovered from his suicide attempt. He grew up, he's putting himself through college, one class at a time. He lives next door to us in a tiny house that he bought and built out himself. Water, electricity, fixtures, it's a thing of beauty. But it's small, so he uses our laundry room. <laughs> I'd get upset when I'd come home and find a load of his things in the washer or the dryer. But when I learned that it's my judgment that shapes my attitude, I stopped worrying about it. Later, I took it a step further. If I find a load of his things in the dryer, I'll fold them up instead of just piling them into a basket. I don't know if he noticed the change, but I serve him in this small way, and I love it. My driving was a 35-year-long argument between Cynthia and me. I like to drive fast. Every trip, Grand Prix challenge. Well, she never liked it, and I always noticed between me and other drivers, there was a very high incidence of a-hole behavior. 
once I got a ticket on my way to a job interview with a safety company. Now, by this time, I was a few years into real recovery, and I had listened to a CD of Jess L. He said he was seeking more types of sobriety, such as cleaning up his language and what he called compassionate driving. Well, I decided to take it on. So my new job at the safety company required me to drive below the speed limit. So with the GPS in the company truck as my guide, I racked up month after month the good marks with speed, jackrabbit starts, quick stops. It became a habit. Then one rainy day I was driving with Cynthia. We were running late for an appointment. Never mind, we had called ahead and they told us, no worries, no rush, we'll see you when you get here. Well, I made a wrong turn, put us even further behind. And so there I was, in a hard rain, crowded, winding freeway, driving like a maniac. Suddenly, I had a moment of clarity. I was not having fun. I was not saving a life. I was feeding a craving, an addiction. So I slowed down. Now I can catch that urge when it appears and make a better choice. And now that I drive the speed limit, I am happy to report that the incidence of a-hole driving behavior is practically zero. Now, this last one chokes me up every time I tell it, but you need some background. Like I've told you, I'm cocky. There's a camera right here behind my shoulder filming everything I do. Here's Jesse shaving. Here's Jesse mowing the lawn. Here's Jesse smoothly changing lanes. Here's Jesse listening attentively. Here's Jesse politely interrupting because the story he has to tell is way better than the story you're telling. tell you what, it's exhausting. It's tiresome to me and to others. Now at home, I'm a rager. Any comment that sounds like criticism or instruction just makes me snap. I lash out, beat back any criticism. I heard a share on a conference CD that describes it beautifully. Here's what he said. I grew up in a family where it was just never quite good enough. So I've been doing a lot of work around that in therapy, and I want to share some experience and some hope around that. I can now start to recognize shame. I call it the shame rush. It starts kind of in the belly, comes right up through the head, and my reaction to that is anger and defensiveness. And so I know if I go to anger and defensiveness, most likely there's shame underneath it especially when I replay something in my head over and over and over again to try to get a different result out of it or what I should have said or how I should have reacted. And boy, it's tough for me to recognize that in the moment and let that pass through me without emotion and show up differently with some empathy because shame is the trigger for me to go straight to defensiveness, end quote. That is me in a nutshell. This behavior was so ingrained in me that when I started to become free of it, I had to be coached on alternative behaviors. We'd do role play. Counselor would put me in a situation saying, well, what could you say to that? And I would rack my brain and I'd be blank. I had nothing. I had to take notes on what I could do or say in certain situations. I had to learn it and it was humbling. 
But by this time, I was grateful and happy to do it. But it's incredible to me that such a well-bred, well-educated man would not know everything about how to behave. I had to learn it. So anyway, I told you that story so I could tell you this one. Here's the moment. A year or more into real recovery, mind you. It was trash day. I'd taken the trash down to the road without being reminded, without blowing it off till next week. I just did it. And as I walk back in the house, I hear Cynthia's voice from another room. Did you take the trash out? And before I could draw a breath, before I could even think, I heard the words coming out of my mouth. Yeah, I took care of it. Thank you. And a wave of gratitude washed through me. Like the shame rush, only better. And a thought popped into my head. Dude, this thing is really working. The feeling was following the action. I had learned humility. I don't need to be right all the time. I don't need to fix the white book. I don't need to speak worldwide. There is plenty of good work to be done right where I'm standing, today or any day. I will see it as long as I stay in fit spiritual condition. I do this by working the steps, which I've now done correctly with loving sponsorship, and I do again with each new sponsee. My errors and wrongdoings today are of a much higher quality than they were when I lived in addiction. (laughs) My friends in the program are the best kind of people I could wish for. I would jump in the foxhole with any one of you, and I want to be that guy for you. I'm also able to form friendships outside the fellowship. I'm not so isolated. My life is not perfect. Family relationships are not perfect. Cynthia does not trust me completely, and I am sorry to have brought this chaos into my home. I've changed for the better. I've made amends and cleared the wreckage the best I can. I'm accountable. I try to show with every action my new way of living, and I live a joyful life. This is my hope for you. Thank you, Jesse. All right, just a couple more announcements because it's all. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.